0: Welcome to the Future Charlotte Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist, and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guest today is June Blotnick with Clean Air Carolina. June, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Eli. It's great to be here.
0: So first off, just for folks who aren't familiar with you and the organization, just give me the 30,000-foot overview. What is Clean Air Carolina? What do you do? Why is it important?
1: Yeah, so Clean Air Carolina is based in Charlotte. We were started here as a regional organization back in 2003. And at that time we had serious problems with ground level ozone in the region. And a group of volunteers just put us together and I started working there in 05. Um, And so, you know, originally our focus was on the Charlotte region, what kind of solutions and strategies were out there to reduce ground level ozone. And eventually, we um, worked our way across the state. So we're currently a statewide organization uh, working on solutions that advance cleaner air and obviously working on climate change solutions as well.
0: So what is the state of our air in the Charlotte region? And are we doing better or worse than we were when you joined the group of, I guess, about 16 years ago?
1: Yeah, so that's always a good question to start with. So on paper, the numbers look good for Charlotte and for the state as a whole. Our air quality meets the federal standards for ground level ozone and fine particle pollution, and those are two of the air pollutants that we're most concerned about. Uh, Levels of ground level ozone definitely have improved over the last 20 years. Uh, When we first got organized, uh, we did not meet that standard. And so we currently do. So that was a big deal for us to come into compliance. And that had to do with state and federal policies that were designed to reduce pollution from coal plants and improve fuel economy standards. So Mecklenburg County Air Quality also has done a great job over the years. In 2007, they came up with a program called GRADE, grants to uh, reduce aging diesel engines. And diesel engines, you know, power our economy um, with the growth we've had over the years. We have lots of construction equipment in our neighborhoods now. And so the GRADE program has um, really invested a lot to clean up diesel pollution. So they're doing a great um, job on that front. But for ozone, we're still just on the line uh, for meeting the standard. So um, we still have work to do. And as a clean air advocacy organization, we have to look deeper at those numbers. So while we've improved and while we meet the standard, we have to remember two things. First of all, the federal standards are not strong enough to protect public health based on the latest research, which shows that people living in communities that meet the current standards still have health impacts. So it's groups like Clean Air Carolina, American Lung Association, and other groups that have called for updating the standards with the most recent science. And so obviously that didn't happen over the last four years, but with the new administration, we're looking forward to the EPA taking the steps to tighten the standards. And at that time, you know, we'll be making comments to the EPA as we've done in the past. And the, the second thing I just want to mention about the standards is the numbers used to determine whether our county or a state is meeting that standard, it comes from a multi-year set of averages from air monitors that are all around the county and state. Now in North Carolina, not every county has air monitors. So the numbers don't always tell the whole story. If you live in a rural county and there may be a wood pellet factory, a landfill, a chemical plant or other kinds of industrial pollution, you have a different exposure story. And you may not even have air monitors in your county. And then if you live in the city and you use the bus for transportation to get to work, depending on the type of fleet your city has is um, gonna depend what kind of exposure story you have. So in Charlotte, of course, most of our buses right now are diesel. Um, But the good news there is that CATS is committed to making that transition to electric vehicles. Um, But if you take that bus every day, you're going to be exposed to diesel pollution. So it's important to know, you know, how air quality can change (laughs) and differ from different cities, different counties, and even different neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and and kind of overlooked point. You know, air is is so ubiquitous, obviously, that I think we kind of just assume everyone is breathing the same air. And that's really not the case. And I know your group has done some really interesting work to highlight some of the disparities that mirror a lot of the other disparities we see in our city around race, income, where you live and how that affects how you breathe. Can you tell me a little bit about that and and how, you know, one, air isn't all the same everywhere, and two, how this really is uh, an equity issue in a lot of ways?
1: Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And for sure, um, inequities, environmental justice issues, environmental racism is definitely an issue that is at the forefront for our community and communities across the country. And I'll just have to say that it's great that The Biden administration wants to make addressing environmental justice issues a priority, and we're very fortunate, of course, to have our former Secretary of the Department of Environmental Resources here in North Carolina, Michael Regan, being nominated to lead the EPA in that effort. So we can actually start with looking at historic land use and transportation issues of the 20th century when we talk about inequities. And um, people may um, have been hearing more, I know I am in my job hearing more and more, about redlining and redlining um, is something that I've known about, but didn't know the extent of the legacy of that practice. And so redlining uh, began actually in the 1930s and it really left the legacy for uh, what we now call environmental racism. And it was a practice first started by the government and then by private companies like banks and other financial institutions of strategically de- disinvesting in black neighborhoods which caused rates of black home ownership and business ownership to really plummet and leaving land in those communities devalued and residents unable to build equity in property ownership so they basically took a, and you can find this just google charlotte redlining And you can find a map. There's a map for most of the major cities in the country. And uh, financial institutions would just draw um, lines around areas of the city that were good risks and bad risks, what they considered at that time. And so in communities that were most often communities of color, they would draw red lines. And so this racist practice really has a legacy in Charlotte. And if you look at the redlining map of 1935 and you overlay it with Mecklenburg County's health priority areas of 2012, and also with the county's poverty map of 2020, it becomes very clear how that legacy of investment policies play a key role now in current economic and health inequities experienced by black residents. And that includes environmental impacts. The other thing I'll mention here is just with the transportation policies. Um, In 1956 is uh, when the Federal Aid Highway Act was passed and $25 billion was invested in the nation's first interstate highway system. And so um, here in Charlotte, you know, we've got I-85, we've got I-77, and in the years after 56, there were a number of uh, Black neighborhoods here in Charlotte, specifically in the west, historic west end of Charlotte, that that really did tear neighborhoods apart and expose those communities to increased levels of pollution from cars and trucks. And so I think you know a little bit about uh, the historic West End uh, project that we've been working on, and I can talk about that for a few minutes.
0: Yeah, I think that that is a really good example of or showing how this is having concrete effects and also gets to the issue of the air looks the same. In the historic West End, as it does in a lot of South Charlotte neighborhoods, you know, it's not like giant visible clouds of smoke from smokestacks, which I think sometimes makes it harder for people to see or to understand that there are different levels of pollution. And I think your project has done a really good job of making the invisible visible for people.
1: Definitely. And that's really our goal and has been our goal for a long time is how do we make air pollution visible? And when it comes to particle pollution, now you might be able to see particle pollution from an old diesel truck, okay? Or you might be able to smell it. Or on a construction site with old equipment, now that is particle pollution. But your body can cough that out, um, those large particles. But it's the invisible particle pollution, fine particle pollution, and ultrafine that is in, that we can't see. And it's in our air every day and we're exposed to it, but we don't know that. And that's the really dangerous stuff that gets in your body, has a hard time getting out of your body, causes inflammation and impacts uh, multiple um, kinds of diseases and health issues. And so in the historic West End, as I mentioned, we chose that area to pilot a program that we call Air Keepers. And about three years, maybe four years ago, new technology was coming around. So right now, the way the county monitors air quality is they have air quality monitoring stations and they're large pieces of equipment. But the new technology is um, at the time and continues to be small handheld monitors that can actually measure particle pollution levels in real time. And so, we worked with three neighborhoods and continue to work with them to monitor particle pollution and they placed the sensors outside their homes and so they could tell what the levels were was it in the green zone the yellow zone orange red and um so we placed those monitors we now have a network of monitors across north carolina but what we ultimately found in comparing levels of particle pollution in the historic West End to other neighborhoods that weren't surrounded by freeways was that the numbers were a bit higher. There were more spikes in pollution levels. One example was um, a situation where there was street paving going on in the neighborhood that day and one of the airkeepers called and Said my, you know, my monitor is really going crazy here, and um, you know that's what it was connected to, and so you know that kind of information can help people take steps to prevent exposure by closing windows or letting other people know to stay inside that kind of thing. But the key point here is that the inequities of the past contribute to health impacts of today. And so even if the pollution levels had been the same, the damage has already been done to communities of color in terms of exposing residents to decades of pollution from the highways and what we call other social determinants of health. And so those those have to do with it could be housing. It could be access to fresh fruits and vegetables, as we know, um, access to healthcare services, education and job trainings, those social things that actually affect your health and not just environmental exposures. And so as a result, black and brown communities have disproportionate health disparities like higher rates of asthma, diabetes and other illnesses. So these pre-existing conditions can shorten lifespans and make individuals at higher risk. Specifically, we're seeing that with the pandemic right now. So it's important to understand the inequities and to really take actionable steps to protect the health of people in those communities. And one of the things that happened as a result of that monitoring was the residents went to the county commissioners and uh, asked for a federal particle pollution monitor station in the historic West End. and They did get that, and it's located in a park next to Friendship Missionary Baptist Church. And that can be used to educate people about air pollution and, um, you know, actions they can take to protect their health. And then the second thing, as a result of that monitoring that came out of it, is like, okay, what what else can we do to improve the air quality? Now We can't move the highways. And so um, the idea came up to start a green district in the area with a vision to strategically plant trees in the neighborhoods to filter air pollution, install green walls, green roofs, maybe um, even paint streets white to cool the area in the summers install EV charging stations, and adding more solar energy. So we're trying to come up with ways that, you know, can really put solutions on the ground. And it, and we're also looking at residents have requested a um, health education campaign, so that residents know where they live can impact their health, and, you know, how air pollution connects to uh, climate change, and chronic disease, and those kinds of things.
0: And let's talk a little about climate change. How do you see that playing into the future of our air quality, and how do we need to start thinking about our air quality in the context of a changing and, uh, and warming world?
1: With climate change and air pollution, uh, well, there's a lot of ways they're connected. Um, With ground-level ozone pollution, one of the ground-level ozone pollution doesn't come out of tailpipes or smokestacks, okay, like particle pollution. It's formed through a chemical process and heat and sunlight are two of the factors that contribute to ground-level ozone. And so the hotter the climate gets, there's going to be an increase in ground level ozone. That's what we're expecting. And so we have to be prepared for that because it's, you know, every year has been the hottest on record for the last at least 10 years. And so we know that we need to take steps to uh, reduce nitrogen oxide, which is the other thing that contributes to ozone. So Mecklenburg County has really focused on that because ozone has been on our major air pollution issue but we need to do more and the you know the things that contribute to air pollution and climate change are the burning of fossil fuels and so we've built a society our whole economy is built on burning fossil fuels in the power sector and in the transportation sector so we've got to take steps to you know transition to cleaner fuels, cleaner energy, and those kinds of things. And that's, that's what's happening right now, which is a good thing. The, the health impacts, I just want to say, are very serious when it comes to communities of color and the public in general. Uh, the North Carolina Medical Journal last fall came out with a whole issue focused on climate change. That's the North Carolina Medical Journal, preparing for the health impacts of a changing climate. And it outlines all the major health impacts that we're already seeing and that for North Carolina specifically, we need to be concerned about. Frankly, if you want to do one thing to have an impact on the climate, it's to buy an electric vehicle, in my opinion, I mean, you can stop eating red meat for sure, but transportation nationwide is our biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. And in North Carolina, it's a close
0: second. Can you tell me a little bit more about what people can do? Because I think that sometimes problems like this can feel almost overwhelmingly big, you know, whether it's climate change or air pollution from so many different sources that we might not have direct control over. I'm curious what you know, people can can actually do both to keep themselves healthy and to help our air stay healthy?
1: Yes, so definitely anything you can do to reduce your carbon footprint in the transportation sector. So, of course, we've seen evidence of that during the pandemic, right, when the cars were off the road, and especially in cities around the world that had terrible air quality you can definitely see that. We actually got a really good deal on our electric car we bought a few years ago with rebates from Duke Energy, I think the federal government, the car dealership, you know, and it, was, it ended up being under $15,000. So uh, the second car we have is a hybrid electric. So if, you know, if you can't afford an electric, full electric, which is totally emissions free, you can look at hybrid electric on the market. Obviously, uh, Charlotte's doing a, a good job at trying to expand our light rail system and bikeways and greenways and things like that. So the transportation area is one thing you want to um, look at in your personal lives. And then the second area is um, energy. Uh, Duke Energy is um you know, still has some coal plants in the area, natural gas plants still burning the fossil fuel, but they're also making a commitment to renewable energy and electrification of the transportation system as well. But with energy, uh, there is a rebate. Duke Energy has a rebate uh, for solar installations and uh, those rebates are available in January at the beginning of the year for rooftop solar. You know, we have a lot more companies in Charlotte and around the state that are offering, um, you know, solar installations, which is all good. We have to green the grid. And so uh, I would encourage people to look at that as an option. Clean Air Carolina did a bike solar tour in Plaza Midwood a few years ago. And we just rode bikes around all the different houses that had solar and were able to talk to homeowners. Uh, about what it's meant for them. Um, those are a couple things I did want to mention also that, you know, uh, Clean Air Carolina has a number of ways that people can actually get involved with uh, other uh, individuals taking action. We have a Charlotte Mecklenburg Climate Leaders Group, and this is a volunteer-based initiative working to advance climate solutions and equity-based strategies. We work closely with the city of Charlotte on their sustainable energy action plan that uh, they passed a few years ago. And um, we also work with the county. The county just got a new sustainability director. So there's, there's the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Climate Leaders that we host and we have monthly meetings and we invite uh, your listeners to join us. Um, they can just go to our website, cleanaircarolina.org, And then the other new program that we started last year with EcoAmerica, which is a national organization, is the North Carolina Climate Ambassador Program. And this program works to engage more and more North Carolinians um, in working on and advocating for stronger solutions to meet our low carbon goals. So we have regular training sessions and and meetings where people can share Actions that they're taking on the local level. Even, you know, it can be personal actions, it can be uh, business actions, it can be actions to contact their elected representatives to work on policy issues. And our next training, it's a free training, is March 16th and 17th. Again, Clean Air Carolina um, slash climate dash advocacy is where you can get more information. So, so we hope to see more people joining that. It's the, the, This group is so excited about having an opportunity to talk to other people about climate change and what can I do about it? And actually, after the last training, there was a group um, that reached out and said, we need to understand what climate justice is. You know, and we what is environmental justice and how is all this connected? And so they are now... Uh, putting together a one-hour kind of lunch and learn on climate justice so that people can understand what are you talking about? Because the inequities that we're seeing, um, really, it it takes a bit to understand how this is manifesting uh, in our society. And so we're really excited about the North Carolina Climate Ambassador Program to connect people in Charlotte to places around the state, as well as we've had people from San Diego, Chicago, and even Conakry Guinea in Africa joined the last training session. I don't know how they found out about it. It's it's a really exciting program.
0: I hear the excitement um, in your voice talking about it. I just want to ask why why this excites you. How do you get you know really really into this? I, I always like to ask people what is it about their area that you know really motivates them and, and makes their work exciting.
1: Yeah, well that's a good question. Um, ironically, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the '60s and '70s, where there were lots of steel mills and ironworks and other industries relating to coal. And uh, so I grew up in a city where there was a lot of air pollution. Six years before I was born, the worst air quality or air pollution disaster in U.S. history happened in a little town called Denora, right south of Pittsburgh. And 20 people died and and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, you know, I had ancestors from Eastern Europe coming over and work in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. So, you know, for one thing, it's sort of a personal issue for me. Um, You know, I came of age also, I was in college right after the first earth day, I was very involved in the early environmental movement. But for me, it, this work has always been about justice. It's, it's not right when we build an economy on, Fossil fuels, which cause people to get sick and die prematurely. You know, we're now 20 years into the 21st century, and we know what environmental toxins are dangerous, but we continue, you know, to pit these short-term economic interests over what we know are long-term public health consequences. And and we continue to give air permits uh, or permission to companies whose practices can make us sick. So you know, um, justice is a big issue. And it's always been for me in my nonprofit work over the, over the years. So that tells you a little bit about
0: why I do what I do. And uh, the final question as we uh, get close to wrapping up here, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change any one thing in the Charlotte region to improve our air quality, what would you what would you pick and what would you change?
1: Mm. Um. I'd have to say, uh, lots of money, <laughs> lots of money to invest in our 21st century uh, transportation system, um, because that is one of our biggest challenges. We have the vision for for um, creating a clean energy, you know, mobility system, but um, it's really the big challenge is the money. And um, I do want to put one last plug in for hydrogen fuel. You know, uh, we're looking at electric uh, electrifying our transportation system, and there are other ways, uh, there are other clean fuels out there. And I wanted to plug hydrogen fuel cell technology as a way to clean up our fleets as well. So I think, you know, Money does uh, do a lot of good things, and hopefully the new administration will be investing in uh, clean energy and clean technologies that will address climate issues and uh, air pollution issues. But we also have to have that local match, so I'll give you that answer and stop there.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I know you already mentioned a few places that folks can go to learn more and get plugged in. But one more time, what's your website and what's the best way for people to connect with what you're doing?
1: Yeah, so it's very simple. cleanaircarolina.org is the website. And to get to our climate advocacy opportunities, it's just cleanaircarolina.org backslash climate-advocacy. Or you can just Google... North Carolina climate ambassadors or Charlotte Mecklenburg climate leaders. We welcome your engagement.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. You too, Eli. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.